Good Wednesday morning, and today we'll be talking about skills that fathers have to develop with Dr. John Patrick. Good morning, folks. It's uh, nice to think you might be there um, in this strange world. One never knows. Um, we've talked a bit how Augustine College started out of a serious reading group, and we've talked about the importance a little bit of uh, family reading to the Jewish success. I mean, why do they win all those Nobel Prizes? Well, it's because of the way they bring up their children. So uh, there are some skills to, to acquire and uh, some history that can help you. Most of you probably have not heard of the trivium unless you're doing classical education with your children, then you will. But by the early Middle Ages, the uh, the church, the Catholic Church as we know it, um, was thinking seriously about its role in growing a Christian culture. And one of the things they thought about is children. They thought, well, um, children are not little adults. Uh, they are different, and it was a long while before that was accepted in the general public. But they're not a blank slate either, which is what many of the people who teach uh, uh, evolution want us to believe, that we're just the same as the animals. Now, there's one sense that's immediately, easily provable, we're totally different. And uh, that is that children come into the world with moral knowledge. Your babies know that you owe them fidelity. They can get you out of bed at will. Uh, and have you rushing down to the emerge just because they don't want to go to sleep that night if you don't understand what's going on. They, they, they know that. They have reflexes just like animals, instincts. Uh, you only have to watch a baby find mother's nipple to see that. But they also have moral knowledge. I love the first comment of most children, uh, philosophical comment, and it's not fair. Lewis uses it as, as the opening to mere Christianity. Uh, he sets it a little later than he needs to because he wasn't a pediatrician and he didn't actually like small children. But before they can make a full sentence, they say, not fair. In other words, they have ingrained in their minds ideas about good and evil, about right and wrong. And we confuse them because they look at us and see we have the ideas and knowledge, but we don't live it. That must be, we don't remember it, but, but it must be one of the most disturbing aspects of growing up, that you come into the world knowing some things which are the image of God, and then looking around and seeing people are, are not cultivating it and not using it. So the medieval said, well, education must take account of that. It must also take account of the incredible memory that small children have. The one thing that you're seven and eight-year-olds can beat you at with ease is memorization. And you should use that because they like competing with you and beating you. So here's a skill you can use. How do you play that skill on your children? Well, set some competitions. Find a passage of scripture you really want them to memorize because you want it written on their soul. And say, I ought to know this by heart, but I don't really... Do you think you could memorize it? I bet you I could beat you at it. And they'll take the bait almost every time. And you need to think carefully what you want their minds to be filled with. You see, at the moment, they're going to school and they're being propagandized. 
lined up in a row and told to decide where they fit on the male-female spectrum. And then the little boys are coaxed and persuaded, well, don't you feel a little bit like a girl sometimes? And they're basically eroding their normal gender development. And we need to be in a situation to be pushing back, first of all, at home, so that they're, they're more comfortable and feel stronger at home than they do there. This is disastrous what's going on. It's child abuse. So their memory needs to be thought about. You know that, that if you've been reading to them at all their favourite books, uh, an interesting thing happens. Now, my, my wife would always spend hours reading to them, and I've seen her reading to her grandchildren and sitting there with her for literally an hour or more. No problem at all. There's, they'll turn the television off for mom, dad, or grandparents to read, if they can read well, particularly. Now, sometimes they did, they make the mistake of coming to me to read to them. And uh, I don't have as much patience as I need, and I also get bored easily. And they bring me a book I've read many times before. So I try and shorten it. What happens? Immediately, Grandad, read it properly. They brought me a book they know every word of. What's God doing with this? I mean, he put this phenomenon into them. Um, our job is to see that the books they really love are the ones that he would like them to really love. That's it. absolutely essential that you, you control what gets into your children's minds in the first seven years of their life. That's why screens are so bad. Because uh, they take them places they shouldn't go at that age. And having the right stories in their mind, told by people they love, is critically important. So, start getting your memory going again, compete with your children and they'll beat you and that's good because you put some stuff in their head for which they will bless you later. Uh, I grew up before screens so I was got at every day because I had the Bible read to me at least twice a day. Um, I lost count on Sunday. Uh, so all that stuff is there. I don't think children lose very much of what they hear in the first few years. It's all there. It just needs the stimulus to bring it back. And it's there so firmly, you can see when somebody gets demented, their memory wears out from recent. And amazingly, it's not the recent memory that's secure. It's the older memory. So they actually get right back to their childhood. Um, you can see it sometimes with a cerebral tumor, when the tumor has caused them to lose some skills and then it turns out to be benign and you take it, the tumour's taken out and they come back up the scale to today. It's, it's fascinating to watch. I had one woman who came and her only complaint when she came was that she used to do the Times crossword, which is the most difficult crossword. The Brits like crosswords. And she found she couldn't, so she'd gone down to the Telegraph and the Guardian. She was down to the Daily Mirror by the time she got to me, which is pretty dumb. And then we took the tumour out and she went back up the scale over a, a month or two. Memory is an interesting phenomenon. I mean, uh, the best ancient account of it is in the, in the Confessions of Augustine, where he says, I know what memory is until someone asks me. Brilliant. We can't explain consciousness. We don't really understand memory. But God does, and... Our job is to, to, to be following his guidance. 
So, particularly the Psalms, which we don't use in the evangelical church as much as we would. It's the church's hymn book, the church's prayer book. And I try and read a psalm every day. When I wake up in the morning and turn the computer on, uh, it's one of the three or four things I do before I do anything else, is to read a psalm. Today it was Psalm 27, which is just a beautiful psalm. And as Blakelock says in his commentary, well worth memorizing because it's so good. That's important. There's a lovely story told of Dr. Johnson when he was a little boy and he was bugging his mum on a Sunday morning. And she said, go upstairs and learn the, the collet for the day. And by the time he got to the top of the stairs, he said, done that. That's, that's a child's memory. Uh, it can be, they're still learning a lot of the dimensions of their memory, so they don't, don't have everything straight, but it's very good. It just has to be interpreted as time goes on. So the reading of books, especially the Bible, to children is critical. And it's critical that both parents be involved. Now, mom will be anyway, because she, in general, spends more time with the kids than dad does. But if dad is not involved in the process, male authority is a real thing. And if they see that dad doesn't take an interest, they won't take an interest. So we have got to, to take it seriously. In, in Deuteronomy 6, the, the central text of Judaism and the reason for its success is it's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your strength. What comes next? Mind. No, that's in the New Testament. That's, that's found in Leviticus, not in Deuteronomy. Jesus normally quotes Deuteronomy, but on that occasion he chose uh, Leviticus. Now, the point is that for the Jew, heart and mind cannot be separated. They're not dualists at that level. They have to, they're integrated. So when heart is mentioned, mind is included, but not for us, of course. In fact, we separate them when we shouldn't. Um, so he says he goes on in, in, the next bit is not and your neighbor is yourself which if Leviticus is what's in your head you will say it's not in Deuteronomy it's this these things shall be upon your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children as you rise up as you lie down when you go on a journey all the everyday events of life not Sunday school not church not synagogue in the home and in all the domestic activities. That's where it has to show up. And this is putting some pressure on you, but you've got to do it. Because the, the amount of time you will be allowed to read the scriptures effectively to your children at the dining room table varies by family. Now, in my family, one of my daughters didn't like that, and she was very good at disrupting it. And that's when you have to start being clever um, that's when you have to start listening to your kids. I never asked my kids and never looked at their marks because uh, I didn't trust the teachers. Uh, I asked them what they'd learned that day and then said, mm, not sure that's right, let's look it up. Um, that's what, again, a father does and they get to understand that when you say let's look it up, it's usually worth looking it up. So you have to listen and then you find out where the tensions in their life at school are. And here comes the next skill you have to 
uh, organized. You have to be able to speak the scriptures in paraphrase so that they don't immediately recognize that it's the Bible. This is especially true when you're talking to liberals who hate Christianity. You've got to be able to know the text sufficiently to be able to speak it in your own language. Then they can't look it up on Google. So they have to take it at face value. They'll try that. So your aim is to say, how do I defeat Google at that level? Paraphrase defeats Google, especially if you're clever at how you do it with a little bit of irony, which Google can't pick up at all. So you see what's going on. You can only do that if the scriptures have entered your soul first. And we can't do that on our own. Uh, read John 15, the, the parable of the vine, uh, every now and again, because it will remind you of the essential aspect of what it means to be a Christian. Without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. There's Everything is ultimately dependent upon God. Prevenient grace, as the ancients used to call it. But why don't you ask, he says in the Sermon on the Mount. You don't ask. You don't seek. You don't knock. If you, if you do those things, it will happen. So, um, Bonhoeffer's advice to people living in difficult times, as we do, is to get God, to ask God, to give you a passage of scripture from him to you as a personal gift. A passage for life. I don't know whether you've got a life text, those of you who are listening, but if you get one, it will truly change your life. Now, in my case, um, having had that incredible start of having the scriptures put in my head in, in chunks, not in verses, um, which is a wonderful gift, and having a, a very good high school education going off to university, listening to two, two or three of the world's greatest evangelical preachers, I still lost my way for a while. Um, I never ceased to believe, but medicine took over, as it does in most doctors' cases. Most doctors go for a period, at least months, if not years, during which they have no subjective satisfaction from fellowship, prayer, Bible study, the Lord's Supper. It's flat. It doesn't do anything to them. They still go. They don't enjoy church very much because church doesn't. Church starts with all sorts of assumptions that are not true. So the first thing that happens when you get to church is somebody jigging up and down and singing, "I love to, I love to feel the the love of Jesus." Well, they're a few light years behind that. Any professional has had bad days during the week. Doctors regularly because we're all fallible and we all miss things, etc., etc., And you've got mad with people. Uh, so the first thing we need when we come into the presence of God is confession. You cannot enter God's presence without that. Lewis, again, in, in, in Mere Christianity, says this, Repentance is not something God demands of you that he could forego if he wished. Repentance is simply a description of what coming to God is like. If you haven't been humbled, you haven't been in the presence of God. That's what happens. 
the classic example in the Bible is Isaiah in the temple. Perhaps the most righteous man in Israel in his time. Yet nevertheless, when he got into the temple and saw a vision of God in his glory, he was flat on his face. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And God lifted him up as he always does. Not always instantly. Uh, it is good for a young man to lie with his nose in the dirt for a while, says Jeremiah in Lamentations, and that's true. We all have to... Be. Being humbled is, is not a punishment. It's an introduction to reality. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux said the first four Christian virtues are humility, 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 and humility, and then you can get started. Not as a punishment, because we're headed to being like him and we're nowhere near like him at the moment and Lewis is right that process is the way we grow uh, Jesus does it as well in the Sermon on the Mount which was my life text when when I actually started praying as Bonhoeffer suggested the the text that was presented to me was in fact not a few verses but three chapters so that I could beat Google and go through the whole of the Sermon on the Mount and Google wouldn't be able to pick it up, but everybody who knows the Bible would pick it up a lot. It's probably one of the three or four uh, CDs, as they would be, tapes even before that, uh, that has had a, a very enduring life. Uh, I know people who say, oh, I listen to it about once a month, which uh, brings me to tears. I mean, the thought of that, of God being gracious in that kind of way is overwhelming to me. But it happens. Um, how do you know when you've got your text? Well, add it to your prayers every day and you will have some sort of experience in which a passage of scripture is presented to you and you realize you have only a very superficial knowledge of what it's saying and yet you know it's an important text and so you learn it by heart. Uh, you read it every day until it comes to life. And that can take weeks, but it does. So, I mean, you can read the Sermon on the Mount in about 15 minutes quite easily. But if I want to do it anywhere near satisfying for me now, it takes at least an hour and preferably three. And I think that is about the length of time most people wanted Jesus to speak for. They, I don't think they ever let him off with a 10-minute homily, so to speak. Uh, we've got snippets in the New Testament in many ways. The reason Matthew can do the job he does is because Jesus went from village to village with the gospel of the kingdom. He, he wasn't saying, he was saying the same thing time and time again, every day, in different ways to meet different people. And I mean, even whilst he was doing that, I wonder whether he was smiling to himself as he, because he knew what was going to happen. We were going to think that when we read something, we knew it. So he purposely didn't write down a single thing in a permanent way for us. He wrote in the sand. That didn't last very long. We were told later by uh, the gospel writers what he wrote, but he wasn't, he wasn't doing that. He told stories that have captured the world. One of the things we can remember is the parables and the miracles, at least in skeletal outline by and large, because 
We were made with minds that were meant to start with story as the grist for the mill. We like to have things cut and dried, so we like lists and a very tightly organised uh, thing because that gives us a sense of control. So Christ doesn't do that. Somebody comes who's very well educated in Jewish terms and tries to escape um, love your neighbour as yourself. And Jesus doesn't reprimand him. He says, because he asked the question, who is my neighbour? And Jesus said, well, let me tell you a story. And then we have the good Samaritan. And I mean, that you can't live in the modern Western world. You see the word Samaritan, but for most of them, uh, the story is only there in a vague sense, whereas a hundred years ago, people knew it because the Bible was the text that everybody knew. It is the basis of our society. Now, you can put those stories into your children's heads and they'll stay there forever and they'll bless you. And you've got to be prepared for when they inevitably revolt against boring, they'll say. And that's when you have to make it not boring by entering their world and getting a text into them that they didn't expect. And you can be... If you took, for instance, well, I'll just tell you a little bit about how the Sermon on the Mount came to be my text because it illustrates the way it can happen. Um, I was exposed to Alan Bloom uh, in 1987 uh, in his book, The Closing of the American Mind, uh, in which he argues, from my perspective, that you cannot get a proper education in the Western world if you don't know the Old and New Testaments, even though he was an atheist. Because we talk in metaphors. This is the only way we can talk, which is talking in pictures, really. And he, want, he needed those metaphors to teach the Greek philosophers. Uh, we, all re, we all love Socrates most because he tells stories that we can remember. We can't remember the argument, usually. We remember the settings, and then we get back to it step by step. Jesus, know, he made us, he knows how we function. So, uh, I came back from a, an, uh, a sabbatical year and somehow said to students that if Alan Bloom is right, you are ignorant. And of course, saying that to students would create a riot these days. Uh, but this was 1987, uh, 88, it didn't create a riot. But I did have a bunch of students, 20 or so, come and say, you ought to apologize for calling us ignorant. And I said, no, it wasn't me that said it. It was Alan Bloom, and he's not here to say it. Um, but I think what he says is you're biblically illiterate. Um, why don't we do the experiment? We're a quasi-experimental faculty. And I didn't know where this conversation was going. It was just coming out of my head free, if you like. And I said, you all think Gandhi's the greatest thing since sliced bread in, in terms of examples and he said of the Sermon on the Mount that it's the greatest piece of literature he'd ever read. So tell me how it starts and what it says. And of course they couldn't. Nothing was there. They couldn't even assemble a single beatitude because they didn't know that's how it started. And uh, I said, well, there you are. Um, Bloom is sadly right. You're biblically illiterate, and that's that's a burden that no one should have to bear because it means you'll lack basic guidance for your life. And then they said, what are you going to do about it? And as I said just now, uh, I wasn't an active Christian. I believe the story was true, but it wasn't controlling my life. 
And I said, well, um, you know, I, I'm busy. Um, it's your problem, not mine. And they said, but you claim to know things we don't. Why don't you teach us? And without thinking, I said, well, you don't even know the questions, let alone the answers. What you need is an Agnostics Anonymous group. So AA was born on the spot. And the only prerequisite was that they couldn't claim to be Christian. And I got a quarter of the class for this extracurricular course every year for a few years till I had to stop because I was too busy. Um, and that was a good experience. But the best part of it was yet to come. As I walked away, I realized that I couldn't pass my own test. Now, if you're made to be a professor, and you should never be a professor unless other people tell you to be, you should never want to be a professor. It's something other people have to recognize. If you want to be and you pursue it, you, you'll probably make it, but you'll, you won't enjoy it. Because if you can't teach undergraduates without bothering to look anything up, uh, which professors don't need to do, we give dozens of lectures without notes. If you're meant to be a professor, that's what we do. Just like a baseball guy can hit balls out of the park and other people can't. It's the same. It's a special gift. It's a gift. And if you've got it, that's that's a life that you should pursue, but not otherwise. So uh, I would sometimes go to biochemistry lectures with the wrong notes because I was bored to see if I could keep, get away with it. Of course, I always could. Um, and it kept me awake. But I couldn't do the Sermon on the Mount in the same way. How could I defend that? Things which I knew to be transient and only of this world, I could do well off the cuff. And our Lord's longest sermon, I couldn't. That's disgraceful. I hadn't applied the talent I'd been given to the most important text that I had. So I learned the Sermon on the Mount by heart over the next few weeks. And then slowly, over months, in fact, over 25 years, it has grown steadily. I still get new insights out of it every now and again. Um, as I began to realize what it really was, we, we don't have the Sermon on the Mount in the Bible. We have the lecture notes. We have a skeletal outline of it. Matthew knew them because that's what he was good at. Well portrayed in The Chosen. I mean, in the, the portrayal of Matthew is clever, and I really like it. A sort of on-the-spectrum type guy who can retain lots of stuff. But every verse pretty well has to be expounded for you to get inside it. And I'm sure that's what happened when Jesus was there. When he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not immediately apparent what that means, is it? I mean, what's he talking about? Where is poverty of spirit anyway? Doesn't sound very good. Wouldn't work in our world where you're supposed to affirm everybody. What he says is, look, if you're going to be intellectually honest, which is where you have to go to start being my disciple, it's not going to be good news. You couldn't walk around for a week with a bubble over your head showing all your thoughts to everybody around. None of us could. Because we all have thoughts of which uh, we are ultimately not willing to be public. And sometimes we're deeply ashamed. Other times it would just wreck all our relationships. That's what humans are. We're all the same. Uh, 
So poverty of spirit is internal honesty. And the moment that begins to take effect, you have, says Jesus, the kingdom, because you become a pursuer of truth, inward truth, capital T truth. And if you pursue it, you find it. My good friend John Robson found it in the last few years after about a 20-year journey, which we'd taken together. Uh, I never pushed him to become a Christian because I don't think that's something we can do. But we were both. We both knew that honesty was essential. He was an atheist, I was a Christian, and I introduced him to Lewis. He introduced me to many other people, and we both benefited from the journey. But now we're brothers. That the kingdom is yours because the kingdom is founded on truth. And Jesus says, I am that truth. So it's founded on him. And he knows that once your heart and mind are turned towards the pursuit of truth, it's only a matter of time before you get to realize it's him. It's happened to Jordan Peterson. Uh, the first time he said, I, I find it hard to believe I'm saying this, but I believe in Jesus now. It took him several years. As the, the, the more you've done before, the longer it will take. A child with Down syndrome can love Jesus instantly because they don't keep any secrets. They're, they are truth speakers. Sometimes, much to our chagrin, they speak the truth to the people around them. That's a, they're an example to us. I don't know what illustrations Jesus used to, to push the point home. I'm looking forward to learning. And it, it turns out, of course, that the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes are consequential. Each one follows from the previous one. And they are, in fact, a character formation process. And what you get is a disciple replacing a mere believer. Most of us are mere believers for most of our life. Our faith is more like a divine insurance policy that we take out when we think we're going to die. And we get all sorts of peripheral add-ons like living in a reasonably decent group with a reasonably decent group of people. That's not a bad deal. The Pascal thing, everybody does, uh, if they're sensible. When asked why he believed, he said, well, the choice is simple. You either believe there is or is not a God. And you act as though one of those two things is true every day. He didn't expel that out, but that's we have to act. And we can't act without a subjunctive tense in our lives. That ultimately will go back to the premise of God or no God. And Pascal says, uh, if I believe in God and he doesn't exist, what do I lose? Not very much. I live with some fairly decent people and I live a fairly pleasant life. But if I believe there is no God, and that's even more an act of faith, because you can't possibly prove the non-existence of God, it's impossible. So... And it turns out there is a God. I go to hell. That's not a good move. So, great texts, really understood and memorized, is, are important. Every dad should read the, the, the Narnia stories to his children. Not telling them that, it's a, that it has a, a subtext. Don't tell them that. Let them discover that for themselves. They love the story. I mean, a, a small child won't even pick up the stone table as the death and resurrection of Jesus. My oldest daughter, who's now a, has been a missionary in Malawi for 20 years, she beautifully didn't understand until the, the last battle. 
uh, astonishingly, the thing that got to her is when uh, when uh, one of the, the children says, in our world too, the whole world was in a stable once, wasn't it? And Johanna says, as then is Jesus. What a perfect time to get to the conclusion right at the end of the last battle. Children are like that. So I don't know how long that we talk for, but I hope I planted some seeds about making your imaginary world, your secondary world, as Auden calls it, much more real than the primary one because it's where we're headed. We're being trained to inhabit a new world, a new life, which we couldn't possibly handle at the moment. Well, thank you, John, and thank you guys for listening today. And be sure to tune in next week for the next talk.